We now have a new administration in Washington which promises to put science at the top of our national agenda. The Bush administration not only promoted oil interests, it sought to censor those who had tried to warn us about the consequences of fossil fuel burning. As we begin 2009, there's widespread hope that alternatives to business as usual will come to the forefront. Our guest today, Davis author Tom Bleese, is someone who hopes to see a radical change in how we generate energy. His book, Prescription for the Planet, outlines a solution to both our energy problems and the question of how to limit the greenhouse gases fueling global warming. Tom's solution involves a nuclear energy technology already developed, but not being pursued. Actually, that's putting it mildly. Swept under the rug is a more apt description. Tom Police discovered the story of research funded by the federal government, but abandoned for political reasons. For the past eight years, he's been tutored by the physicists and engineers involved with the technology of the Integral Fast Reactor, or IFR. Tom's book is Winning Converts. NASA scientist James Hansen, the world's leading expert on global warming, was so impressed he cited the book on Charlie Rose's program on PBS. We're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Tom Bleese. Thank you for inviting me. Tom, let's, uh, let's start by outlining briefly what an integral fast reactor is and how it differs from the type of nuclear power plant which the world is currently using, getting, what, 15% of our energy at present. Well, um, the current type of uh, reactors are called light water reactors, and the fuel is only passed through them one time, and then we throw away essentially over 99% of the energy that's in the uranium that's been mined. Uh, whereas an integral fast reactor burns 100% of the energy that's available in the uranium. Essentially, we have enough uranium all, already out of the ground to power the entire planet for nearly a thousand years. Yeah, I must say there is one particular graphic in your book that, that illustrates the various energy sources. And when you compare the IFR, what it is capable of, versus other sources, it's pretty mind-boggling. People say there's no silver bullet to the... Um, to the energy crisis, and I don't know, I didn't make my graph out of silver bars, but <laughs> you can see that uh, there's one bar that uh, indicates that we have economically recoverable uranium resources available for about 50,000 years if we burned them in, in this type of reactor. Well, your book spends uh, really an inordinate amount of time, something like 100 pages, actually going over what our energy options are before you even began talking about the IFR. Now, now solar is perhaps people's favorite non-carbon energy source. Why do you find it insufficient for our needs? Well, for one thing, uh, solar uh, sunlight is diffuse, and so you need such vast amounts of space where you uh, would put the solar panels that it just gets to be untenable. There was a recent uh, Scientific American uh, pro-solar special edition and what they figured out was that in order to produce 69% of the electricity that America needs, we would have to build approximately 30,000 square miles of solar panels. So I went and I looked at the most famous uh, currently operating solar farm. Uh, it's called Nevada Solar One. And they put up 300 acres of solar panels. It took them 16 months, I believe. And I extrapolated that out to uh, 30,000 miles of solar panels, and I came to the conclusion that if we wanted to produce 30,000 miles of solar panels to produce just 69% of the electricity we need, at the rate they built Nevada Solar One, it would take two square miles per day, every day, seven days a week, until the middle of the century. Wow. 
So if they built it at the same rate, it would have taken, to do two square miles at the rate they built Nevada Solar, one would have taken about 5.6 years. So what we have to do is, is scrunch down a 5.6 year construction time to a day, and then do it every day until 2050. I see. Well, uh, doesn't sound promising. Let's delve a bit into the work that was done at the Argonne National Laboratory between, I guess, 84 and 94, that, which developed the, uh, the IFR. Can you give us a little bit of an outline of, of what, what that was and how you got wind of it? Well, uh, actually, I got wind of it on a talk radio station. <laughs> there was a, a caller that, uh, in a discussion about nuclear energy, said, well, there's a technology that can burn nuclear waste as fuel. And that was about all I knew about it at that point. I finally contacted uh, the public information director for Argonne National Laboratories and started asking him questions. And he was very kind to answer all my questions, but would never answer more than I asked. And finally, after several months of exchanging emails and talking on the phone, one day I was talking to him and I said, Paul, you know what I'm trying to find out. Why don't you just tell me? And he said, well, I can't tell you. I said, why not? He said, because the Department of Energy has ordered us not to publicize this information. And I said, well, you're the public information officer. <laughs> that must be kind of frustrating for your job. And he said it was, but uh, once I realized what the situation was, then my relationship with Paul changed a bit, and he, we would have conversations. I would give him a whole list of questions, get my answers, and he would sometimes give me leading uh, information so that I could go dig around for another month and come up with another list of questions. And finally, over a period of a year or so, uh, I finally got it sorted out. This reminds me of Woodward and Bernstein with Deep Throat was telling them, if you know, I'll answer yes or no if you ask me the question, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell them what to ask him. Yeah, exactly. And, and it struck me that the scientists who'd worked on what was the largest energy research project in history must be incredibly frustrated about it. And I asked him about that. He said, well, most of them are pretty sanguine about it because they figure that eventually global warming politics will trump energy politics. However, in the, in the later years, when I started working with the scientists who ran the program, they weren't sanguine at all. They're tearing their hair out because every day they're reading about, oh, where are we going to get clean energy? And they know exactly where we can get all the clean energy we want. So um, they were very motivated. What happened was uh, several of them retired. And so the more or less gag order that the DOE had put on them really didn't apply anymore. And so they were eager to cooperate with me and educate me about this. So that's uh, how the whole story finally came out. Well, in reading your book, I really was stunned by the fact that while the, while the engineers, American engineers with American funding working for the federal government, are, have not said much, they're going out and getting international awards from other nations for their work. Yeah, it, it was insane. Russia was giving them uh, awards for, for the very research that they weren't allowed to talk about <laughs> in their own country. We're belaboring this a bit, but I do think we need to be absolutely clear that it, the evidence shows quite definitively the IFR program was killed for political reasons. Yeah, and the, you know there are a number of reasons why one could surmise it was killed because it would certainly mean the demise of the coal industry, and coal is a huge industry in our country, although we do try to hide it. 44% of the freight on U.S. Uh, trains is coal. But we tend to put our coal plants out where people generally don't see them, and so the general public doesn't realize that every day on a per capita basis, we use 25 pounds of coal. 
you know, at first I thought that uh, that the coal industry and, and the other fossil fuel industries might be behind a completely clean, unlimited energy resource. But the more I looked into the congressional record and the, and the history of it, the more I realized that a lot of it was just uh, political posturing and ignorance and uh, ideological stances regarding anything with the word nuclear in it. I frankly think there wasn't much of a conspiracy. So let's go back to details about the IFR. This question of what to do with nuclear waste is a national debate, and you note that we use a lot less nuclear material with an IFR. How, how much less? I mean, there'll, there'll be some, I presume, uh, nuclear waste, but but how much less? Well, there's, there's such a small amount. Essentially, if you had a one gigawatt uh, nuclear plant that was run with these fast reactors, you would have to bring in uh, about a milk crate full of depleted uranium to fuel it every four months. So the waste that you would get out of it uh, would be, in a year, would be about the size of a small filing cabinet. Figure a plant would uh, last about 50 to 60 years, so you could just keep all of the waste on site for the entire life of the plant. At that point, you're going to have uh, 50 or 60 filing cabinets full of uh, nuclear waste, which is in a glass form. So the radioactive material cannot leach out of this glass for thousands of years, yet the half-life of the, of the um, fission products in the glass is uh, much shorter. The current nuclear waste that we have, or what we call waste, but is actually spent fuel, uh, will be radioactive for tens of thousands of years, whereas this would be radioactive beyond background levels for about 300 years. Uh, yet it couldn't leach out for thousands of years, so you could put this, uh, this nuclear waste, you could bury it almost anywhere. It wouldn't even get into the water table if you buried it somewhere where it was exposed to the water table. But Tom, being that it does have a, a shorter half-life and therefore presents a, less of a long-term problem, doesn't that make it sort of a hotter product while you're trying to store it for 300 years or 50 years or whatever? It's thermally hotter, but uh, we have uh, dry cask storage that can easily handle it. It's not a problem. Well, then the bookend of that question is, um, how much more of our nuclear materials would this IFR make use of? Because we've got, we've got things like on nuclear warheads and a lot of, a lot of nuclear material out there. Well, we've got uh, quite a bit of plutonium that's already either been coming from used warheads or, excuse me, unused warheads. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, or uh, decommissioned warheads, I should say, or from uh, spent fuel that's been reprocessed. But we can use all of it, essentially. Uh, we've got enough spent fuel to, well, actually, we don't have enough spent fuel to fire up the plants as fast as I would like to build them. So we, could actually, we actually don't have enough nuclear waste. If we built the reprocessing plants to, to reprocess all our nuclear waste, and we built the fast reactors as fast as I propose building them in my book, we're actually going to fall short a little bit. So if we continue to run our light water reactors and even build a few more, it's not a big deal. We'll be able to use it all up. Three and a half years is um, pretty speedy. We can create new fuel in the breeder reactors, in the fast reactors, uh, but it takes about seven years to create enough new fuel to start up a new one. So we're going to have about a three and a half year shortfall if we build these as fast as I'd like. And the, the pace that I propose building them is a pace at which we could reach zero greenhouse gas emissions by the middle of the century. I want to talk about that, that reprocessing again in a minute, but, um, but let's, let's talk about this proliferation issue. Uh, an IFR is a type of breeder reactor 
The U.S. has clamped the lid on breeder reactors since the 1970s after India developed an A-bomb. You've noted in the book that proliferation, nuclear proliferation, is not a concern with the design of this IFR. And, and why is that? Well, proliferation of one type or another, even if it means just dirty bombs, can certainly be a concern anytime you have fissile material. Uh, however, the uh, light water reactors, for instance, that we burn now also create plutonium. Any reactor that uh, uses fission ends up creating plutonium. The thing about fast reactors uh, and about the IFR design in particular is that you have a reprocessing facility on site. And so once uranium or plutonium goes into the plant, it never comes out. And when it's reprocessed on site, which has to be done periodically, the plutonium and uranium is never separated into anything that could be used for a warhead. It's always mixed in with other fission products that keep it radioactively too hot. So even if a terrorist, for instance, was able to penetrate one of these plants, he wouldn't be able to pick up the material. It, he can't, you can't handle it except remotely. So it uh, greatly decreases the, the risk of proliferation. However, if you're going to build these plants in unstable, politically unstable countries, uh, it would be best if there was an international organization that directed the operation and maintenance and building of these plants, which is what I propose in the book. It's called the Global Rescue Energy Alliance Trust, or GREAT. I want to return to the reprocessing issue. Um, you say we could reprocess these IFR materials on site. The French reprocess the materials that come out of conventional reactors now. We do not in the U.S., thus creating all this nuclear waste problem. Before it went into the IFR, would you have to do some reprocessing on that initial run-through? In order to, to take the spent oxide fuel from the light water reactors today, you would have to do an initial processing uh, job on it in order to make it into the metal fuel assemblies used in IFRs. So the most practical way to do that would be to build one or two reprocessing facilities in the United States, probably one in the West and one in the East. And uh, in those processing plants, you would essentially convert all of the spent fuel from current reactors into metal fuel for the, the uh, fast reactors. So we would have at least at least politically difficult issue at one point of having to set up a couple of these things on at least a couple sites in the country, which, which we don't have now. Well, we don't have them, but we're talking about building a MOX plant, which is the French-style reprocessing plant down in South Carolina. Uh, at a cost of about $300 million. And all that's meant to be built for is to recycle 33 tons of plutonium. We uh, dismantled some warheads, and we made a deal with Russia that if they dismantled some, we'd dismantle some. And we each ended up with about 33 tons of plutonium. And the deal was that we would build MOX plants, mixed oxide fuel, to convert this plutonium into fuel that would be suitable for light water reactors. Well, shortly after the deal was done and the warheads were decommissioned, the Russians took a look at the situation. They said, this is crazy. Why should we spend all this money on building a MOX plant? We've got a fast reactor. We can just burn it in that. And so they said, oh, well, we're just going to burn it in our fast reactor, and we don't have to go through all the hassle of building the MOX plant. Well, in the United States, we don't have any fast reactors running, so we have to build this ridiculously expensive plant to process 33 tons of plutonium. If we built a fast reactor recycling plant, we could not only reprocess the 33 tons of plutonium, but we could start reprocessing all this spent fuel. So Russia has a functioning IFR that they are using now? 
They have a functioning fast reactor. It's not a, a full IFR complex, which also okay, includes okay. the recycling facility. Right, right, right. But uh, the Russians actually, back in the days of the Soviet Union, had a metal-fueled fast reactor that was used to uh, produce both electricity and desalination. It was built in what is now Kazakhstan on the shore of the Caspian Sea and back in the 70s, and it worked fine. This is not new groundbreaking technology. I mean, these guys were doing it, what, 37 years ago? So again, just to kind of clarify, I think it's worth doing. Uh, this is a type of fast reactor as opposed to a slow reactor, which is the conventional type. Uh, the IFR was the one that uh, Argon developed with some new tech or some, some refinements of technology, but it's based on stuff that's been around quite a while. Yeah, they, they definitely refined it because uh, the goal of the scientists at Argonne was to solve all the problems associated with nuclear power, safety, proliferation, economics, and they did. They were tremendously successful, and it was just political short-sightedness that killed the program in 1994. We're speaking with Tom Bleese, author of Prescription for the Planet. Tom, let's talk about uh, plant safety. Uh, people fear the meltdown of a, of a core reactor or they fear a terrorist attack on a nuclear facility. The IFR was designed to, to, to avoid some of these issues. How, so, I mean, how much safer is it than a plant like the one down at San Onofre in, in Orange County? It, it doesn't even compare. There, there's a thing called the probabilistic risk assessment that every new nuclear plant design has to undergo. And what it does is it tells you the percentage risk of uh, various types of accidents. So uh, in order to be certified, you have to have a risk of a, of a core meltdown once every 10,000 years, which sounds really safe, except for the fact if you have a thousand plants running, that would mean one core meltdown every 10 years. And we may indeed have a thousand plants running someday. So we'd like to be safer than that. Well, the PRISM reactor, which is the General Electric's commercial design for the reactor that was designed at Argonne National Laboratories for the IFR, underwent their uh, probabilistic risk assessment studies, and they were so astronomically safe that I did a calculation figuring if we built enough of these, which would take about 27,000 reactors, they're pretty small, um, to produce all the power that humanity needs, if we didn't use any wind, solar, hydro, nothing else, how often could we expect to have a core meltdown? And the result was about once every 435,000 years. Uh, and since Neanderthal man disappeared about 30,000 years ago, that's uh, pretty safe. You don't get into too much about this in the book, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but we, we, if we're going to talk about nuclear power generation, we do have to, I think, make just a slight mention of what happened at Chernobyl in Russia back in 1986. Can you give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of that disaster? It, it was a design that never would have been built in the United States. Uh, we knew about this design, and Edwin Teller had decided years before that, no, we'll never build one of those. It's too dangerous. The reaction time to the uh, control mechanisms was too short. In other words, the reaction could get away from people before they could uh, shut it down. Uh, they were also doing some ridiculous experimental type things on it, which they never should have been doing. And they had no containment building. So essentially, they ended up with a steam explosion that blew the top off of this uh, building and released the radioactivity. 
instead of using water, they were using graphite, which itself burns. Not, not such a good design. Yeah, well, some of the early reactors used graphite, and they had a problem with that in England as well. And people were learning how to do things, and um, there was much less... Uh, concern regulation in terms of environmental issues and safety issues uh, everybody in back in the 50s it was like oh the scientists they'll save our bacon from everything <laughs> under the sun and and there were a lot of scientists that were merrily going on their way uh, you know and obviously they weren't trying to have accidents i mean they didn't want to blow themselves up but there were there were a few accidents very few chernobyl is an unfortunate uh, circumstance of bad design uh, bad operation, and uh, it's a design that would, never would be built today. The reactors today uh, are so much safer than Chernobyl as to be in a completely different class. Well, let's flip it around. Let's assume that uh, we're going to go full speed ahead with um, integral fast reactors. How many are we going to need? As, as I said before, uh, the goal is to reach uh, zero anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, zero man-made uh, greenhouse gas emissions by the middle of the century. This does not include agricultural emissions, which is about 14% of the emissions that we put out. That's a problem I've left for other people to deal with. But in terms of power, uh, in terms of uh, vehicle emissions and that sort of thing, we want to build about 100 or 110 2.5 gigawatt reactor complexes per year. Now that sounds like really a lot and, and people might think that's a crazy idea, but what I did was I looked at what France did since the 70s as they converted their electrical production almost completely to, to nuclear power. Now they produce about 80% of their power with nuclear, about 20% with hydroelectric. And I looked at the, the GDP of France and looked at how much it cost them to build these plants and how quickly they were able to do it. And then I looked at the GDP of the countries that make most of the greenhouse gas emissions that are capable of building these plants and came to the conclusion that building 100 or 110 of these plants of that size per year would not stress any of these economies any more than France had been stressed while they were building their nuclear plants. We're speaking with author Tom Bleese about his book, Prescription for the Planet. We need to take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 